Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me again. It's good to be here again. And uh, I think what you said just then about the the intersection between technology and business and journalism is exactly right. Um, that's where I sit, and and I sort of officially sit there now. So I'm the um, deputy editor, one of two deputy editors at The Economist now, um, under the new editor-in-chief, Sani Mitterbedos. Um, I studied, when I was here at Oxford, I studied engineering and computer science. So, so I was, I'm a computer scientist by training, um, but I also worked on the student papers here. In fact, I mostly did photography rather than writing. But while I was waiting for my films to dry, I would often type articles in for people, and then I would often sub them because their writing was so bad. And I, I, in retrospect, I ought to have recognised that the fact that, you know, me, the photographer, um, the fact that I was subbing their copy um, was probably sending me a message that I was in the wrong, the wrong line of business. Um, anyway, so, so uh, I ended up going into journalism uh, basically because of the computing um, in 1990. 93, 94, when the consumer internet appeared. Um, I'd used the internet a bit here uh, in 1989 and 1990, but uh, when it showed up as a consumer phenomenon, none of the newspapers had anyone who understood it, and I immediately started writing for The Guardian about the internet, and I spent a year there, and then two at The Telegraph doing the same thing. Um, but I could see that uh, having internet supplements in newspapers was very much a short-term game, uh, as indeed it was. So I needed to, fight, to find a more sort of long-term thing. So that was why I uh, jumped to The Economist in 1998 to cover science um, and technology um, and then ended up doing business and other things there. So I, I have a, a long sort of background in basically technology, science and business journalism. Um, and I ended up... Uh, being business editor and writing quite a lot about technology and business and business models and startups and business models. Um, and then I ended up, as well as writing about you know, what publishers should do about the internet and about iPads and so on, actually deciding um, what the economists should do about those things. So I was the editorial person who was you know, involved in putting our apps together uh, and that sort of thing. And what's, um, what's happened now is that, um, as well as being... Um, deputy editor, I'm also the head of digital strategy for the Economist Group, and they put me on the general management committee. So I'm also simultaneously a senior executive at the company. Um, so I get to wear the journalism hat and the, um, and the business hat, but I'm also, by training, a technologist. So I really am at the intersection of those, those three things. One of the things I did at The Guardian, for example, 20 years ago when I was there, was build the first editorial website for The Guardian, which I wrote articles for and also coded in Perl. Um, which was the glue of the internet back in those days. So, so anyway, so essentially, I have I have um, been at this intersection of business models um, and technology and journalism um, for my whole career. And what I want to talk about today is um, is the fact that I think that companies, media companies, need uh, to understand those three worlds. But I think they're set up in a way that um, actually doesn't allow them to. Um, uh, and I think the way I'm going to sort of explain the challenges that face particularly incumbent media organisations like The Economist um, is by telling you about Espresso, which was something that I launched last year. Um, I had the idea for it on a plane coming back from uh, going to South Africa and not sleeping terribly well. And I had this sort of fever dream where I said, oh, we should do an app and it would have this and it would do that. And um, We haven't ever really done a daily product before we'd done a weekly um, and I wanted to sort of ask what would the economist look like if it was a if it was a daily because you can do a daily in digital in a way that you can't in print um, and in order to answer that question 
I had to ask, well, what does The Economist really do? And this is something we were thinking about a lot last year. We had a new CEO who'd come in a few months earlier, and a bunch of us, including me, were given the task of sort of distilling The Economist. It wasn't quite right a mission statement, because we're allergic to that sort of thing, particularly on the editorial side. But it was essentially, um, we want to, we want to formalise the narrative of what we're trying to do. And so um, I was involved in that project, and what we concluded was that um, at its root, what The Economist does is... Um, the, the thing, the job we do for, for readers, and this is the sort of Clay Christensen jobs to be done approach, what is the job we do for readers? Well essentially readers pay us to save them time, that's the model. So the reason we're able to charge so much for a subscription is that um, readers pay us to distill the week's news into a format they can actually get their heads around and actually finish. So a big part of this is that we make a finite bundle in a world of infinite streams. Um, so finishability is a big part of our appeal. Now you, you can do that uh, you can only make that model work um, if you are trusted. So we have to be a trusted filter. Um, we have to uh, convince people that when we distill everything down into this really quite slim magazine for them each week, that it really is the stuff they need. Um, but essentially, that's the deal, that, um, that they trust us to make, a, to make a finishable bundle out of the week's events. Um, and then there are two other components to that, as well as actually just sort of summarising, which something like The Week does extremely well as well. Um, there are two other things that we do um, that are very important. One of them is we're obsessed with the future, and we always have been, um, and trying to work out what the future looks like. And this is a personal obsession of mine as well, which is why I'm so interested in history, why I'm so interested in sci-fi, and why I'm so interested in technology, because they are the three ways you can, I think, the most reliable ways to sort of figure out what the future might look like. Um, so one of the things, another job that The Economist does the second job, apart from the producing the finishable bundle part, is being the smartest guide to the forces that shape the future. So if you want to know, so trend spotting, um, and we have some nice examples of this, um, but you know, we've been calling for drugs to be legalised for a very long time. We had a cover, a very controversial cover in the 90s, supporting gay marriage. Uh, we had a cover a year before the Arab Spring saying change is coming to the Arab world, um, which we very happily trot out. Um, so we like to think, um, obviously we get lots of things wrong as well, but there are some uh, cherry-picked examples of things we got right. Uh, but, but, uh, but either way, you know, spotting these big demographic trends, you know, did you know there are going to be 1.7 men of marriageable age in China to every woman by about 2060? Um, and it's because of the selective abortion of, um, of girls. Um, and also because of a, um, a cohort effect that um, the, the changing shape of the population pyramid and the fact that men tend to be older when they marry mean that they'll, that will squeeze things even further. Um, that's the kind of interesting you know, future, future trend spotting thing that we like to do. So that's the second job. Um, so there's filter, there's um, uh, trend spotting, and then the third job is advocacy. So it's the sort of calling for um, things that we think ought to be changed. So we're you know, we're saying energy subsidies are totally stupid, now's a really good time to get rid of them because oil prices are low. Um, or, um, obviously, we're, we've campaigned for a long time, and this is great when people say, oh, yes, The Economist, just what you'd expect from a sort of you know, typical right-wing uh, uh, publication that, of course, we're in favour of abolishing the monarchy, legalising drugs and um, gay marriage, which aren't necessarily right-wing positions. <laughs> and then we're accused, oh, well, that's just what you'd expect from a typical, this is what Americans say, a typical left-wing European publication. Yes, absolutely. Of course we are. Uh, of course we're neither left nor right. We are sort of liberal in a John Stuart Mill sense. Anyway, so we, we realised that these were the three bits and they were uh, the filtering, the trend spotting and the advocacy. Uh, and we do all of that in a global way. So we're the view from the moon. Um, we're not sort of just doing this for one country. And then we do it all at a standard that allows us to charge a premium price. 
Um, so our business model is based on, uh, on subscription revenue, um, and that's a very good place to be um, because uh, business models based on advertising are terrible now and are only going to get worse, unless you're Facebook and Google, but most people aren't. So um, for everyone else, it's only getting worse. Um, anyway, so the question was, if we do this sort of filtering and trend spotting and so on, on a weekly basis, what would a daily version of that look like? And that was what I wanted to do with Espresso. So I wanted, the, I wanted to make a daily product that was, um, that was finishable, so it had to be really quite uh, compact, there not be too much to it. Um, we wanted it to be a, a sort of shot of information in the morning to get you going, which is why we called it Espresso. Um, we wanted it to be forward-looking and trend-spotting. So the structure of most economists, uh, most Espresso stories is this thing is happening today. You should look out for it. Um, this, is, this is what it tells you. This is what it means. So, you know, these numbers are coming out. This company is re reporting its results. This person is meeting this person. Um, this is what you should expect. This is how you, this is how you fit today's event into the... Um, the sort of bigger narrative. Um, and so we want that kind of jigsaw piece slotting into, into place feeling um, that, you know, we want to give that, pe that feeling to people in the morning. So, uh, so, you know, why is, I don't know, why are the Castros, um, uh, you know, why, why are they talking to, why, why are relations thawing with America? Well, in part, it's because they can't rely on Venezuela to prop them up. So in part, it's a consequence of the fall in oil prices, uh, which in turn is a consequence of more shale oil in America. So, you know, that sort of day-to-day uh, -day event that, oh, I don't know, Castro is meeting Obama at a summit, um, slots into these much larger geopolitical narratives. Um, and so we want to kind of give you that feeling of connecting what's happening um, to the bigger stories. And then those bigger stories, of course, the place we want you to read about those is in the weekly Economist. So uh, Espresso does stand on its own, but it's also a way of introducing people to um, the Economist more generally and being a stepping stone to the Economist. It's a way of ensuring that existing Economist subscribers have an excuse to interact with us every day and maintain their loyalty. Um, and, you know, it's also, I'll be perfectly honest, um, one of the ob uh, objectives we had with Espresso was to sort of um, reassert our ability to innovate, um, and that seems to have um, that seems to have done well. However, actually making a product like this highlighted several problems, um, not just within the Economist, but I think within um, news organisations generally. Um, and I think the 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 really the kind of root of it all is that this is a representation of the Chinese wall between editorial and commercial. And The Economist has the strongest um, Chinese wall of any publication I've ever worked at. When I worked at The Guardian, um, I didn't really have to deal with, I mean, the advertising department would tell me what shape the ads were on the pages that we were, we were laying out. But um, at The Telegraph, I was rung up a few times by the advertising department who would say, please, can you write a few more articles about this? So because, because we want to um, sell, sell, sell ads to those companies. Um, so that's the sort of thing that simply never happens at The Economist. And you know, people would go nuclear if it did. We have the strongest Chinese wall that I know of in the industry. Uh, and that's great, because for a long time, you know, since about 1850, this has been the model. But um, you basically have editorial people over here who all report to the editor. Um, and then you have commercial people over here who uh, and we produce the content and then these guys over here are responsible for getting it printed onto paper, getting the bits of paper loaded into lorries, getting it delivered to subscribers, ensuring that the subscribers pay their uh, subscriptions, collecting all the money, also selling ads that go next to the editorial, but doing all of that in a way that we, you know, doesn't touch what we do at all. So we produce the, the content and they do the, the delivery and the sales. And that, you know, that's been the model for a very, very long time. Um, 
and there's a big problem with um, with technology uh, and the changes that are going on at the moment. That that, that essentially this asset of having the strong uh, strong Chinese wall has become a liability. Um, so you essentially have to have collaboration between editorial and commercial uh, today uh, in many, many areas. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to let them boss you around on editorial. Uh, you still have to have ed editorial independence. So you have to preserve that aspect of the Chinese wall. But there are other areas like technological development, like analytics, like social media, where you have to work together. Um, and that's problematic because that means you need to have holes in the Chinese wall or windows or you need to have people who have, you've been trying to keep apart. I mean, The Economist, we actually have them in separate buildings. So we have editorial in the tower in um, St. James's and we have the commercial side of the company are at Canary Wharf. And so they are you know, physically separated. Um, and to build something like Espresso, it was not something that we could build uh, in editorial alone. And the way, way we'd previously done this with our previous apps, so this, for example, is our weekly app. And the way we built this in 2010 um, didn't really involve having to collaborate. I mean, it involved having to collaborate a bit. But the point of this app is that it allows you to read what's in the weekly every week. So the, the editor's job is to produce the content in the weekly, which they're already doing. And essentially what this does is it it does a different version of what's happening over here. Instead of printing things onto paper and sticking them onto lorries and delivering them, um, you stick it, you funnel it into an app, and you have to have built the app, and then you have to deliver the app, and you have to have agreements with the app store, and you have to have billing systems, and you have to have it all hooked up to the subscriber database, and so on and so on. But we didn't actually have to build anything new editorially in order to do this. We didn't want to make an app that had sort of lots of whizzy new features because we didn't want to violate the finishability that's really important. Um, we wanted people to be able to take the reading ritual they have of reading The Economist in print each week and transfer it over to the app. So we kind of deliberately didn't innovate editorially when we, when we built this. And I think that was the right thing to do because we didn't want to, you know, The Telegraph, for example, tried this. The Telegraph made a, um, when they built their first app, they basically built an app that sucked stories off the website. And it meant if you were on the train and you were reading the, uh, uh, you were reading that day's Telegraph and you were halfway through a story and you slept your iPad and then you'd get to the, your desk and you want to read the rest of it, you'd turn the iPad back on again and the app would go, oh, look, there's lots of new stories. Look, here they all are. And you would get this feeling of, of being overwhelmed by an infinite stream of stories that you were never, ever going to be able to read all of. And so the Telegraph did a survey and they asked their app readers, do you want... A, a basically finite snapshot of content sent to the app that you might actually be able to get to the end of, like an old newspaper, or do you want always to have the latest, greatest stories on top? And um, the readers said, we want the first of those things. We don't want this infinite stream that we can never get to the end of. You can never finish the internet. Um, and so I think a lot of our um, success in recent years has been because we make something you can actually finish. We're the antidote to that information overload and that sense of being overwhelmed. And the more, that, the more infinite streams there are, the more news sources, the more noisy the information environment gets, the more demand there is for what we produce. And that's why we see our subscription numbers you know, very strong and, and, and growing. So I think that's a, a crucial insight. Um, the FT have recently introduced a switch to their app. So you can either have the today's edition switch, which just shows you what's in the print edition today, or you can have the you know, latest stories switch, which shows you the latest, depending on what you want, um, because, you know, some people want one and some people want the other. Um, but I think, that's, I think that's quite an interesting thing. Anyway, in this case, we just wanted that week's story, um, th that week's stories in the app. So we didn't have to do 
um, any difficult things on the editorial side to, to make that work. And then we made a whole bunch of other products. We made these anthologies, um, which were sort of repackaging of the, of the weekly. And we have the audio edition, which is the, the weekly turned into audio. We have newsreaders who read it out. Um, we made traveller briefings, which are where we gather together information, you know, pr uh, relevant articles about different countries. And so all of these products are derived from the weekly. Um, and that essentially meant that we didn't have to do anything different journalistically. And what I wanted to do with Espresso was to, was to say, well, um, we need to think about new products. Given that we're having to compete with all of these new digitally native rivals um, for people's attention, um, they aren't thinking about things in that way at all. If you go to a startup um, or you go to one of these startup news organizations, they are thinking about technology and editorial and business in a very integrated way. And in particular, they have a, um, a, a sort of product model that is much closer to what the tech industry has than what the media industry has. So it turns out that um, there's a sort of classic mistake that um, media companies make when they develop products. And that is that they think, only launching a magazine, it makes sense, you can see how this has happened. When you're launching a magazine, you, you, know, you start to you do your design internally, and you commission some articles, and you do a few dummy copies that you don't actually show anyone. Um, but you do all of the sort of product iteration before you launch. And then you launch, and the magazine is is sort of a, emerges fully formed into the world and you know obviously you are allowed to iterate the editorial formula a bit but basically you hope that you've got it right and that um, that people will like what you've produced if you look at how tech industry um, launches work uh, you make something called the minimum viable product which is basically the worst product you can get away with launching um, you then launch it and you see how people use it and you look at the analytics and you use that data to decide which features to change or which to add or which to remove and you then iterate post-launch and you, in fact you usually don't make much of a song and dance about launch you do a soft launch um, and then you start turning up the sort of marketing money later on so it turns out that when media companies and we're not alone in this make apps we do we treat them like they're print magazines we fiddle with them and we build them and then we launch them and then we don't to pay enough attention to the iteration and the analytics and the, all that sort of thing. And all of the people we're competing with in the tech industry do. So it's not surprising that they tend to out-compete us at these, these sorts of things. Uh, obviously, we have the advantages of brand. We have the advantage of, you know, we already have lots of journalists who are very smart and so on. So from, the, from the running Espresso as an internal startup, which I did, um, I was able to draw upon uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of assets. I obviously had the editorial stuff. I wasn't going to have separate editorial stuff for um, Espresso. I wanted it to be written by the same people. But I could, I could draw on the marketing and the uh, you know, finance side of things. And we put together basically a cross-functional team internally. It's like an internal startup. And we had all of the benefits of being a startup, which was that we could get the best people and put them all together. Um, but we had none of the drawbacks. None of us were gambling our mortgages or our careers on whether this worked or not. Um, we had the money from... Uh, you know, from from the CEO to to do it, so we didn't have to worry about funding. Uh, we knew we could use the brand and the channels that the brand has to to get the app out there, um, and so that was what we did. We we uh, we built the the app, um, and it was uh, it set some precedents because it's the first time that we built a new kind of content for a new kind of app and considered the delivery mechanism of the app and the content as a kind of coherent whole. And this is what tech companies do. So we said, well, usage patterns are changing. People are reading short things on phones in the morning. So just making an app that pipes full-length articles into, a, into their phones in the morning is not going to cut the mustard. This is what the New York Times tried with the New York Times now. The New York Times said, 
people are reading less on mobile. So what we'll do is we'll take the 500 stories a day that we make for the New York Times and we'll just offer 50 of them in an app, and that's shorter. But the actual articles are still very long. So surprise, surprise, that didn't work terribly well. Oh, the other thing they said they'd do was, um, and then we'll do a presentation of this in a stream because we've noticed that people quite like Twitter. Um, so we'll try and compete with Twitter. Now, good luck to you if you want to compete with Twitter for, I mean, you know, Twitter is fantastic, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say as a media company that we had much of a chance of, and even the New York Times, who are much bigger than us, I think trying to make something that's going to compete with Twitter is, is a bit of a tall order. Um, so what we said was well, we want to make a, we looked at what Circa was doing and what and Yahoo News Digest was doing um, and what Vox is doing with card stacks. And they're all fooling around with different short form or, or stacks of short form things. Um, and they're doing some very, very interesting, I mean, I think the Vox card stack and the, and the Circa approach are quite interesting. This is, a, this is a discussion you may be familiar with, um, and if not, you can find it, that happened two or three years ago, um, uh, about what's called the atom of news. And the question is, what is the sort of atomic unit of news? Uh, is it a paragraph? Is it a story? Is it et cetera, et cetera? What we have is people inventing new kinds of atoms. Um, and... I think the Vox Circa um, example is particularly interesting. This, the card stack idea is brilliant because I remember when... Just when, want to explain a bit more what it is in yeah. case people haven't seen it. Maybe we could, maybe we, I could probably call one up actually. Uh, why don't we go, just go to Vox and find one. Um, when, when Ezra Klein said he was going to go and do Vox, um, he said he wanted to make a, a kind of a mixture between a Wikipedia and a newspaper. So you would say, what the hell's going on at Ferguson? And instead of getting an article on it, you would get a card stack. And then whenever there's another sort of Ferguson-like event, um, it would, you'd, be able to, you'd be able to see what was going on by reading this stack. So let me show you what it looks like. And what's really clever about this, um, and you'll appreciate this as, as practicing journalists, is that um, it avoids the Wikipedia problem. Because initially I thought, I was just going to try and build Wikipedia for news. And the big problem with Wikipedia, from a news point of view, is that um, is you have to distinguish between things being urgent and things being important. So in the news business, we're all about what's just happened. But in the, long, in the grand scheme of things, that thing that's just happened may not actually matter. So let's say we've got the, um, the Wikipedia page about Barack Obama. Barack Obama, yesterday or the day before, got to have his own Twitter account. So, oh, woohoo, he got to have his own Twitter account. So Twitter lights up about, isn't it great that, um, that, that at POTUS has his own account? And then Bill Clinton tweets at POTUS and says... Um, when you stop being president, will you hand over the account to the next person? I'm asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> uh, so everyone retweets that as well. Okay, so you could say, no, I don't know, I haven't looked at the Wikipedia page, but it may be that someone's gone to the Wikipedia page for Barack Obama and said, wow, everyone's really excited about his Twitter account. We've got to have that on the Wikipedia page. So they've stuck it on the Wikipedia page. And, you know, in a week's time, let alone a month or a year or a decade, this is not an important part of the story of Barack Obama. And so what do you do about that? Because um, as a news organisation, you would be expected to have the most recent interesting thing about Barack Obama, and let's say it's that, and I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's something else. So how do you balance the need to have the urgence with the need for the kind of step back? So I thought, what the hell is is Ezra Klein going to do? Because he can't use a Wikipedia-style model. The answer was the card stack. So I'm going to show you what it looks like, um, and then you'll see how clever it is. Let's find one. Card stacks. Here we are. The network neutrality, but that's a tool that no one can no one can agree. Because <laughs> <laughs> you get three, you get three people in the room, and you get four definitions of network neutrality. <laughs> then it, and the other call. Let's not even go there. Then um, you've got everything, everything you need to know about Israel-Palestine. Another, yes, exactly. another reason subject. That's a tool. But okay, let's try Israel-Palestine. See what we get. Um, so here we are. Here's the card stack. But the point is, they can embed these card stacks. So here's card one of twenty-five. Um, oh, for some reason I thought, what about prison? Oh, never mind. Is that what I asked for? It must be. Uh, but anyway, so, so what is prison? 
um, correctional <laughs> control, and then you get one in 35 Americans is incarcerated. And so these are basically discrete facts about prison in America um, that stuck up. And what's really, really clever is there is no need for this to pre present a coherent narrative. You can add a new card or take a card out or so you don't have to do what we would call writing through, which is where you add a fact to a story, and it's like shoehorning something in, you know, and you go, oh, God, that's really... We've got to have that fact, but it totally mucks up the flow of the story. So then you sit there as an editor, and you have to fix it. Well, they have solved that problem, because they, no one expects a card stack to read like a New Yorker feature. Um, so that's what's, that's what's really, really clever about it. Anyway, so you've got Vox doing card stacks. You've got Circa doing something very, very similar with, um, with news apps, uh, which is interesting, although they don't seem to be making any money and they're now about to go bust and probably Twitter will buy them or maybe Google, who knows. Um, and then you've got uh, what uh, Yahoo News Digest was doing, <coughs> using a summarizer to, uh, to basically boil down um, news stories. So what we thought was, well, we need to make a new kind of atom of news for The Economist. And so we came up with these stories, 150 words long, that we call chunks. Um, and they are kind of economisty because they have a, um, a striking fact, they have a news peg, they have a link to the bigger narrative, and they usually have a prediction about you know what to look out for, what what comes next. So those are the sorts of things that we expect um, you know chunks to have, and they are sort of mini economist um, stories. So this was a new form of editorial for us, but actually um, once I'd written a whole load of them, and then I made a guide to how you write them, and then I gave it to lots of people, and then they wrote lots of much better ones, and then I could make a much better guide, and then gave that to more journalists. So we came up with this model, and it's a very clear target to to aim at, and I actually really love writing them now, because, you know, it's a, um, writing a sort of short, sharp story in 150 words is a, is a challenge. It's like, I can't remember who it was, a, a philosopher who said, I'd have written you a, I'm sorry my letter's so long, I'd have written you a shorter one, but I didn't have time. So, so writing, writing shorter things can be, a, can be a challenge, can, can, be, can be fun. Um, anyway, so we had the combination of a new technology delivery platform, because we made an app, and so I, I prototyped the app, um, first and sort of tried different ways of doing it and then when we were happy with it we actually built it as a as a as a proper app um so i got to do some of i got to wear my uh, my uh, computer science hat for a bit as well which was also fun but this is how a startup would do it that you would think about the two sides of the coin and then the other thing i was thinking about was the business model so i was i was um uh, also when i did the presentation suggesting we do all this i said and the business model would be this we would charge three dollars a month four dollars a month for this um which would mean that it would be a sort of fifty dollar a year product and at the moment the economist is 130 dollars a year for a print subscription or a digital subscription and 165 for both so this is that's quite a big that's a lot to ask for people I mean, the next most expensive magazine is the new yorker which is on 70 dollars um, and, you know, everyone else is cheaper than that. So we recognise that asking people to go from not paying us anything to paying us that much a year is quite a big leap. And this was a stepping stone halfway. So we could say, look, try The Economist. It's only, you can try the kind of thing we do for $4 a month. Um, and if you like it, you can trade up to this bigger thing. And then at the same time, we wanted to give existing subscribers to The Economist, uh, at least uh, digital or print plus digital subscribers, we wanted to give them access to Espresso without having to pay for it. Uh, so that way it would sort of bind them in and, and, uh, and you know, give them a reason to interact with us every day. Um, so that was what we did. And um, we built the app and we launched it in November. And it's going well. We've had 800,000 downloads. We have a weekly reach of 200,000. We have a daily reach of 120,000 or so. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, you know, generally people have recognised it as... 800,000 downloads yes, exactly. 200,000 weekly reach. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And about 175,000, which is about a third of the existing subscriber base who are entitled to get it for free, have, have taken up that option. 
Um, so we need to get more of them to do it. But you know, as these things go, it's uh, it's doing well. So I think the the point about all of that is that we had to bend the rules of the way a media company normally works, which says that the editorial people go over here and the commercial people go over here. We had to say, no, ignore all of that. We're going to have a cross-functional team that reaches across the, uh, across the Chinese wall uh, in order to build this product. And that's the only way we could have done it. Um, and what I think this means more generally is that, um, is that media companies, you know, big newspapers, the ones that have the strongest, the strongest Chinese walls are going to have the most trouble adapting to the new um, technological model. And so I've taken a great interest in the, in the past few months looking at exactly what the old charts of these other things look like. So um, the, uh, you know, the New York Times or The Guardian would look a lot like us and would have... Uh, so they would have a very similar kind of um, org chart to us. Uh, what I'm really interested in is what do the startups look like? So they would have this, this sort of thing. And, oh yeah, the other piece of the puzzle here is, and this is something that took me a while to get my head around too, because it's a, it's, a, it's a funny way that, um, that people in the tech industry use the word product as though it's an abstract noun. So they'll say things like, this is someone who really understands product. And you go, what do you mean product? And there is actually a thing called product. Um, and that's what this is, in fact. It's, um, it's being able to see, um, if, I mean, you know, you could say Steve Jobs was so great at what he did because he understood product, right? That is a kind of horrible way of saying that. You know, he understood that you can't just look at the thing you're trying to sell from the perspective of one of the, one of the aspects of making it or one of the ingredients. Um, so a sort of product mindset says that you need to consider the editorial and the business model and the technology all together. And you need to be able to, and then you need to sort of consider how that combination of stuff will look to the end user. Because of course, the editorial people are going to say, we want to have you know, millions of stories that are really long and all these features that you can't build. And the tech people are going to say, you can't have any of those things and we can't build them. And the business people are going to say, and how are we going to make any money? And you have to, you have to um, think of all those things together. Um, and that's what product people do. So then the question is, how do you integrate product people into an all chart that looks like this? Um, and it's quite hard. So, so if I go back to here, and we kind of, we started doing, so the, the, the initial problem I had was, um, we had, the earliest manifestation of this was, when I started doing digital, that the people who work, um, the techies who can, who can program our website, are part of digital solutions, in other words, they're in commercial over here, uh, and they've got lots of people telling them to do things, you know, add this new kind of advert to the site, add these tags so we can track things, uh, you know, change the paywall, all that kind of stuff. And then meanwhile, there's us in editorial going, we'd really like it if there was a widget that, you know, appeared on every story about this subject so that you could find the other ones. And the problem was that we journalists are over here and they don't work for us. So we kind of ask them to do things and they don't really have to listen to us. And they're not, and, and they're not, and so how did you, they weren't even in the same building? No, no, no. So, so you so, send them yeah. emails or what do well, you do? I mean, we'd have conference calls and they had all of their kind of programming things. So they have a backlog and they have agile programming. And they, you know, they might as well be speaking a different language. Again, unfortunately, it's a different language that I also speak because I have that back. But to most, to most people, um, and, and a really, really terrible thing about it is that if you do agile development, you have things called user stories. Now, this is the single most confusing word you could have chosen if you're dealing with journalists, because a story is a discrete unit of work that is something you want to build. Um, and so journalists are like, why am I talking to you about stories? Anyway, so it's, it's, it, it couldn't have been designed to be more confusing. Um, anyway, so that's how it used to work. Um, and then uh, this is the kind of thing we want to be able to build. So we ended up actually hiring journalists in editorial, sorry, hiring programmers in editorial um, 
to build stuff for us because it was just the easiest way to do it. But then the problem was that they're mucking around with the same code base as the programmers over here, and that's a recipe for trouble as well. So what we ended up doing was building projects like this, which is the, the big um, essay, sort of all singing, all dancing essay pages that we launched last year. Uh, we built them using a cross-functional team. So this was the first example of where we had to make a hole in the wall and we had to act in a more tech industry startup-like way. And we would, we would have these regular meetings where we'd have the editorial people, the editorial developers, um, the commercial people, uh, the, the woman who was selling the ads and the sponsorship, uh, you know, and we would all, every week we'd get together and say, where are we in the project? What's going wrong? What do we need to add? Is everyone happy? What do you all need? Um, and this was the beginning of, of doing it. Another area where we made a hole in the wall was, in, with, with, was with social media. So social is an area where you have to have to have journalists doing your social feeds because it's, you know, the journalists write the best, they understand the stories, they write the best um, tweets and the best Facebook posts. Um, but you also have to have marketing people involved because social is a kind of marketing. I mean, you're using your content as marketing. You need to have people who understand the reach and, you know, how effectively things are spreading. And they also want to use social to promote things like subscription offers. So you have to have those people working together. And the other area where we've just made another hole in the wall is analytics um, and editorial analytics. Because previously we had commercial people over here who were in charge of analytics and they were producing all the reports they wanted to do with advertising and so on. But we wanted to know things about page views and you know how far people were reading in the app and all this kind of stuff. So we now have a, a you know, dedicated editorial analytics head and he has a team which in fact is a cross-functional team like this. So these, this making holes in the wall is, is it's a way of dealing with the fact that we're structured like this. Anyway, so let's, you know, let's just have a quick look at what the business models of other people look like. This is what someone like BuzzFeed would look like. Um, so BuzzFeed has um, editorial, and they would be blue people, and these would be the developers who support editorial. And then these might be advertising people over here, the red things, and then the grey things are their developers who build stuff for them. And then this unit here, this might be, say, video. So you'd have mostly editorial people, but you'd have some commercial people too. And then this might be events, which would be mostly commercial with one editorial person. And the thing that makes all this much simpler is that um, these startups tend to have a founding uh, CEO editor-in-chief. So the commercial and the editorial head are the same person. Um, and that really makes life much simpler because we have you know, the editor-in-chief and the CEO who both report to the board. And... Um, you know, they have to resolve their differences at board level. Uh, that can be inside someone's head at BuzzFeed or, or at Quartz or somewhere like that. And that makes life, or Vox, I mean, that just makes life much easier. Um, so for our new venture, for Economist Films that we launched in, um, in April, um, I said, we need to have this kind of model. Economist Films cannot be a thing in editorial or a thing in commercial or, or a, a cross-functional team. It needs to be a new business unit um, that has commercial people in it, has editorial people in it, and reports directly um, you know, to, the, to the board. Um, and so that's, that's how we've done that new venture. I've taken a leaf out of the BuzzFeed book and done this. Um, so interestingly, BuzzFeed does have its version of church-state separation. Uh, BuzzFeed is a very interesting company because it's um, uh, not what it appears. It's really an ad agency with a news organization wrapped around it. Mm -hmm. And they make all their money from uh, the sponsors who pay them to write uh, posts that then spread, uh, that's where all their revenue comes from. So it's not an advertising-based model. Um, and then they get the reach for those uh, sponsored posts by doing news coverage, some of which is very good. But the people who write the sponsors' posts are totally different people from the people who write the news posts. And they are very strict about the church-state divide. And, and you know, they've had this big argument recently about whether they're being strict enough and whether they've been unpublishing stories that are unflattering to advertisers and so on. But the fact that they're even having that argument is telling you that they are trying to 
they are trying to have some vestige of this this distinction. BuzzFeed has a very similar model. So make your money from sponsorship. And in fact, they're actually making more and more of their money just from licensing their, their video. But they have a news organisation to give them credibility and reach um, so that they can uh, deliver that audience to their, to their sponsors. Um, anyway, so I think this whole kind of how do we do the, how do we do the business models, um, how do we do the business structures is a, is a real challenge. And it's, it's, uh, it's something that startups don't have to deal with, but it's something that incumbent news organisations have to deal with. And the stricter the, the stricter the Chinese wall, in other words, the better job they did under the old business model, the harder it is under the new business model. So I think this is something we all have to grapple with. And the Guardian, I understand, they have a, they have a technology unit, they have an editorial unit, and then they have a separate product unit. So they're trying to integrate three, that sounds like you know, an even messier version. So I don't know how that's working. And I'm really looking forward to Lucy's book that, that looks at all of these things and sort of takes the lid off these uh, uh, business models and, ha and has a look. Um, so I think that's one of the really uh, big problems that uh, tech companies face. The other, sorry, that media companies face at the moment. The other one I'd just like to touch on briefly is, um, is what's happening with ad-based business models and advertising generally. Uh, essentially, the, the model of putting stories up on the internet and putting your ads alongside them is a horrible model now and is only going to get more horrible um, for several reasons. Um, firstly, you've got the shift from desktop to mobile consumption and the rates you can charge for ads on mobile are much lower. Uh, secondly, you've got the fact that programmatic buying and allocating your excess inventory using programmatic buying uh, has this sort of lowest common denominator effect uh, that pushes prices down even further. Then you've got the fact that ad blocking is extremely prevalent. 41% of millennials are using ad blocker. My daughter lives in incognito mode with ad block on um, and a whole load of other um, Chrome extensions which just hide things about the internet that she doesn't like. Um, and, uh, she doesn't and like? That, well, she, for example, she doesn't want... no, well, no, it's, for example, Tumblr. So she's a big user of Tumblr. Uh, and uh, Tumblr sold to Yahoo. They keep redesigning Tumblr. And the really hardcore Tumblr users hate the redesign. So there's a Chrome extension you can get which puts the design of Tumblr back to the way it used to be. And every time Yahoo releases a new design of it, the guy who makes this Chrome extension updates it and it goes back to the way it was. So you know, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of control she's exerting over the media environment and she's certainly not seeing any ads. Um, so it means if your business model was put news stories on the web and then sell advertising alongside them, that's a really horrible model already and it's only going to get more horrible. And I thought it was very interesting that when Verizon agreed to buy AOL last week, one of the things that came out of the conference call was that the Huffington Post is still not profitable. The Huffington Post has been doing this model for quite a long time. It was sold for whatever it was, $350 million a, a few years ago. Um, and essentially its model is put up stories and put ads alongside them. And the Huffington Post ought to have the version of that model that works the best because they have an enormous um, you know, number of page views. And they get a lot of their content free because they let people, you know, write for them and they get celebrities to write stuff for them and authors and, you know, uh, uh, they don't have to pay for every single story. So if anyone can make that model work, it should be them. And even they're not profitable. So if you're The Guardian and you're actually paying for all of your stories, then relying on this model looks um, uh, not like a terribly brilliant thing to do. So I think, I, I think relying on um, display advertising as your main source of revenue is not going to work anymore, which is why I'm very, very pleased that we never have and that our proportion of revenue from... Um, from subscriptions, which is about 60-65%, is going up. Um, and I think basically getting people to pay us for what we do is the, uh, is the, is the best model for us, and I think it's going to be an increasingly prevalent model um, in the future. I think 
I think we'll, we'll see a sort of shakeout of people who are trying to do things in an ad-funded way. Um, so I will stop there. But those, I think, are the, those are the things that uh, I've been thinking about and that worry me and that I think you should be thinking about too. Thank you. Thank you very much.